Welcome back to the Controlled Pairs podcast. We've been doing the podcast for a couple of months now, and today I have the distinct privilege of being joined by Dan Dimitrescu. And Dan, you'll have to forgive me for butchering, no doubt, your last name, but I'll let Dan introduce himself here in just a second. He's uh, he's the co-founder over at Killhouse Games, long history in game development. Killhouse Games and Door Kickers 2 are obviously extremely important to my YouTube channel. So it's an absolute privilege to have you here today, Dan. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, tell the audience and the listeners a little bit about you and what you do over at Killhouse. Uh, hey guys, it's uh, great to be here. Uh, it's an honor for me also to speak here after all the great guys that uh, CPG had on uh, on the podcast. Um, as he said, I'm one of the founders of Killhouse Games and what you normally call the game designer. Uh, being that we're a small team, an indie team, everybody actually contributes to game design, uh, to the concept of the game. Uh, you design maybe on my side, I may outline a feature, but once we get to implement it, uh, once programming artists uh, get involved, uh, they shape it to, and we discuss and we may actually make the final game. Um, but uh, at least on paper, I'm, you know, the creative game designer guy. The only one assigned on that job title, at least. <laughs> no, that's awesome, man. And, and seriously, thank you so much for being here. These podcasts have been super fun. You did mention a lot of the folks who've you know, been on before. I've been extremely fortunate to have great guests. And I think it's a, it's a real treat to have you today because you know, Door Kickers has been extremely important to me personally, not just because it's a fantastic game that's certainly trending in the right direction, but um, also because it's the first game that really allowed me to kind of connect with my audience in a, in, in a, a different way, a, a unique way that most content creators, I, I think, don't or can't, uh, just by virtue of some of the experience I've been fortunate to have in my life. And that connection in the in Door Kickers as a game um, really like helped the channel grow in a profound way. And, and I don't know if you had ever kind of looked at the numbers, but um, before I started making Door Kickers videos, I was sitting right around 10,000 subscribers and trending positively, but it was a slow grind. Uh, and, and really, as I started diving into Door Kickers, that, you know, 10x, and, and now we're sitting close to 100,000 subscribers. And that's largely attributed to, you know, Door Kickers and just having that platform and that tool uh, to be able to play and enjoy and share my passion for it with the audience. So thanks for making it first and, and doing such a good job on it. And then certainly thanks for being so generous with your time, um, you know, over the next hour or so and, uh, and coming on, you know, today. Uh, as I said, my pleasure. It's a, it's an interesting, um, phenomenon to, you know, to watch because of course, Door Kickers 2 is our second Door Kickers game, our third indie game. If you count also Action Squad, Door Kicker Section Squad, the side scholar we co-produced with our partner at Pixel Shard, and um, since Door Kickers one, we've noticed how much you know the right kind of YouTuber um, helps grow the audience of the game. But you know, we've also been uh, intrigued, but by you know what makes a good video that uh, you know works for your game. What kind of game works better for Twitch or for YouTube? Are we there? Are we not there? How can we make the game more fun to watch? Is it just you know the graphics or what happens? Uh, so uh, having you 
which were relatively small compared to other YouTubers that played Door Kickers 1, you know, when it was a new concept, maybe in, intrigued some big names, uh, like Total Biscuit. Um, so they would play the game once and you would see a spike in views or, you know, visits to your page or sales. And uh, that would be it. And then you would um, see somebody like uh, a smaller YouTuber and uh, you would obviously get some results, but proportionately much lower. On, on your side, you definitely have a niche that uh, seems to grow um, and to exploit the game to a greater extent than your initial audience would uh, suggest. So I think you're probably a very good match for our game and also for the niche that you're exploiting, the tactical games. And uh, you've gathered the audience, people are yearning for this kind of content, this kind of games. It must be also a very good context. Uh, it helped us immensely. So uh, I think it's a symbiotic relationship, you know? Uh, you grew, but you helped us grow too. Yeah, and I appreciate you saying that. It, it certainly is um, mutually beneficial. And it's also great to hear developers, you know, paying attention to what content creators are doing, not because we're more important than just your traditional audience or just a, someone buying the game and playing it by themselves for fun. Because um, at the core of any game, it, it seems like that's certainly the most important part, making sure the average player is having a fantastic experience. Um, but I think content creators are certainly an indicator of, you know, how fun a game is to play and watch. And so it's great to hear that, you know, you take into account what it's like to, to watch someone play the game or stream someone play the game, because those certainly do you know, seem to be important. Um, so how long have you been in game design? Kind of looked at, you know, I creeped on you on LinkedIn. I'm sorry. Um, oh, so, so I saw on there That's that. creepy, man. <laughs> That's what LinkedIn for, right? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but so obviously I'm familiar with your history over at Ubisoft. I know you did, uh, you know, some significant work on the Silent Hunter series, which um, I was a huge fan of. I was a little bit younger, probably didn't dive into, you know, the sub-sim um, niche as much as I would now if I touched it, but it's such a fascinating kind of uh, niche and such a cool way, you know, to simulate combat. Um, so how long have you been in game design? Tell me a little bit about your time over at Ubisoft. Um, tell me a little bit about the Silent Hunter series. Are you still playing any kind of sub-sim style games? Um, just kind of what led you to here? Yeah, um, so this part of history of, let's say, Killhouse Games history, my personal history, which they are interconnected because um, both myself and uh, the co-founders of Killhouse Games started at, uh, or we met at Silent Hunter, in, specifically in the Silent Hunter 5 team. Um, so uh, I started working on games before that in 2001. Uh, I was uh, actually a video game reviewer for a small magazine, or computer games magazine here in Romania. All computer games magazines were small back then. I don't think any actually survived until now because of the you know, rise of internet. But back then, obviously, we didn't have that. When you uh, got a computer games magazine from out of the, you know, out of the country, maybe with a cover disc, initially with cover uh, floppy disks, if you, know, uh, if you remember that uh, era, uh, with demos and everything, yeah, you were yeah. fascinated by those. Yeah. Uh, I, for example, I remember when I got, or a friend of mine got a, I think a PC game or with a demo for UFO, for the first UFO game. And 
it was just a mission, you know, you were clearing a small UFO on a crash landing. I think I did and redid that mission like hundreds of times, trying all various tactics, weapons, approaches. Uh, very limited, but very fun. Yeah. So in in a way, I'd say it's the same kind of experience we are trying to do with door kickers. Okay, it's a mission, but it shouldn't necessarily be a set piece mission that can only be played in one way. You may find one solution, but ideally there should be tens of solutions of, uh, or, you know, even not so definite solutions, but you are able to mix parts of this and that solution, blow this wall, go through there, launch uh, flashbangs, try something else. This guy's a guy. I don't know. A anything of that sort. So if you look at the tactical games like XCOM or if you look at Commandos or uh, Rainbow Six, those are elements we brought um, to door kickers in bigger or smaller um, part. So um, I was reviewing all sorts of games for this magazine, which uh, was actually founded by a friend of mine. And, you know, like a school, I was still, I think, in high school back then. Um, and um, I developed a taste for tactical shooters. So I guess I was interested in the sub subject uh, before that, you know, and flight seems for sure. But then you, when you got Operation Flashpoint and uh, the mm -hmm. first Rainbow Six and Delta Force and everything, yeah. I discovered something new that didn't really exist as a game. Um, or at least I haven't touched, you know, the old SEAL team. There's a very old... Uh, more like a simulation of infantry than I'd say a tactical shooter, first-person shooter as we think about them right now. So um, uh, I developed a taste for those. And uh, since I was the guy that actually wrote about simulations and everything of that sort, uh, I also wrote about those. And my first job was actually uh, as a computer games designer was to be lead designer for a sort of Rainbow Six, but in a, you know, value title sort of way. Um, it was called Secret Service. So that's for a company called Funlabs that was working for Activision Value. So uh, I worked on all those kind of games uh, for a couple of years. And um, then I learned that uh, Ubisoft was doing uh, Harpoon. I think they also got Isle 2 under their, uh, you know, their wing, under their publishing arm. Um, and they also, Learn. They announced Silent Hunter Free, it, and it was developed as to Ubisoft Romania. And uh, I happened to know um, the lead designer of Silent Hunter Free, and basically said to myself, "If they're developing a simulation in Romania, I have to be there." So uh, I applied for a job, got a job as part of the design team at Silent Hunter Free, which was an incredible team, and. Uh, Contributed to that title, learned a lot, worked then on Silent Hunter 4, uh, the add-on to Silent Hunter 4, and Silent Hunter 5, and other games um, also. And uh, it was an interesting experience even when working for other games. For example, uh, at some point I worked on Tom Clancy's Hawks 2, on Blazing Angels, which was an arcade shooter, but also on, um, if you know, there's a small uh, series called Assassin's Creed. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard of it a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they developed. Um, so I didn't work on the main titles, but they also had a multiplayer side, uh, which was like PvP, and um, that one was co-developed by a studio in France and uh, our studio in Bucharest. And 
I participated even in some playtesting that which they did um, uh, in France for those titles. And uh, it's very, very interesting to actually directly watch, maybe not even interact, because normally in a big company you have people which are specialized in organizing those titles, they, uh, those uh, tests, they know how much information to give at which point, which you as me at least as a developer back then i was not very familiar with with their method but you, when you watch somebody as a developer play your game first of all you'll want to run away but <laughs> second you get to see what he understands yeah and what he likes what he doesn't understand of the things that you may think they're very clear very obvious so it's the same when i watch somebody like you or another player uh on our game so uh, it's very hard. It's very hard for me to watch uh, even you play, but we force ourselves to do it, and we discover lots of problems or lots of and or things that say, okay, it's a problem, but we have to accept it, or it's a problem, how do we fix it? Uh, so it's fun, but it's also very useful to make a better experience. Uh, and the trick is to watch as much as you can, but also put your head on, the, you know, think how you can make a better experience for the player and obviously not never you know rest on the issues that you notice yeah no that's that's extremely interesting so clearly you've got you know a a a depth of experience in the industry it's also pretty cool to hear that you've been within kind of the same niche um for much of that time with you know you said you worked on some arcade stuff and some things that are outside the niche, but clearly um, a depth of experience in simulation and, and certainly the tactics side of thing. Also pretty cool to hear you you know, say how much you value watching other people play it. I can't even imagine how difficult that is. You know, I know when I get passionate about a project or I've been working really hard on something, even if it's like a piece of content or what have you, I, I do try to share those choice pieces of content with people before they go live. And every time I'm just like cringing. One, because you know, it's, um, you're kind of like, uh, you're sharing a part of yourself. It's something you've invested so heavily in and worked really hard on. And then to just kind of hand that baby over to the world and, uh, get feedback on it can be, you know, difficult to do after you've invested a lot in it. So yeah, man, after, uh, after all that time, you know, over at Ubisoft and, and clearly you were, you know, pretty successful, um, in, in, in kind of climbing the corporate ladder, as it were, in this large AAA, you know, uh, dev team. What what made you kind of decide to to walk away, and, and kind of what led Kill House to being founded, and you know what led to Door Kickers One, uh, and Action Squad, and Door Kickers Two, um, and you know what kind of what was the kind of the differences between working in that massive company versus kind of starting your own gig and, and going with a smaller team to work on these passion projects? In a big company, you're definitely, you know, a small cog or a bigger cog, but still you are somewhere in a decision ladder, decision apparatus. Um, just an example, I always wanted when I was in Ubisoft to work on Tom Clancy's games, I wanted to work on uh, Ghost Recon because Rainbow Six back then was like forgotten, and in my opinion, it still kind of is. They are always trying all sorts of uh, projects with it. I don't know what's happening right now with Rainbow Six, but obviously there is a siege. Um, Back then it was actually Patriots, I think, Mm. uh, that was trying to take shape, and siege was just an offshoot of it. Um, 
so they were still doing Ghost Recon, and uh, Ghost Recon was right up my alley, and I really wanted to work on that. As a develop- developer, I always thought I work best and I'm most successful and I can produce the best kind of you know content, ideas, designs, whatever you want to call them, when I'm working on something I'm passionate about. So simulations, tactical simulations, flight sims, stuff like that. I know maybe more than the average person about it because obviously I'm, you know, um, using my own time to, you know, research it, read books, watch movies, play games. Um, And uh, I know what makes a fun game, or at least I can offer some advice in that direction. So I always wanted to uh, work on those kind of games. And I think it's... uh, for the company and for myself, it's better if I do that instead of, you know, random pro- project, you contribute, but you're just another designer on our role. So when um, Ubisoft was no longer doing that sort of stuff uh, I was interested in, and when I was not, uh, I didn't fa- have any place in a Ghost Recon team. Uh, we also um, thought that we can work better on our own and have, uh, you know, ideas that need to be put into practice. And there are certain advantages uh, to going indie also, if you are successful indie, that is. So when you're a corporate, you get a salary, but which is, you know, um, fixed, more or less, you might get a bonus, but um, it's also a safe bet. When you're an indie, all bets are off. So that means you might earn more money, you might have more creative freedom, but you also might not be very successful. There are many indie games which are very promising, but uh, never uh, make enough money to survive. So they turn back to corporate or try other games. We were at that creative point in our life when we felt we can try something on our own. And actually, we sat on the door kicker's idea for a couple of years. And in those years, we grinded it and uh, thought about control and everything and thought that it actually has some merit even from the commercial point of view. So it should uh, be at least mildly successful. And we went in uh, doing Killhouse games, accepting that if it will be at least mildly successful, it will be okay for us. And we'll see what, uh, uh, you know, what happens next. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And you you talked just about kind of some of the perils associated with going indie. And I mean, I've watched countless indie projects that I was excited about, um, you know, really struggle. And you see them just not sell a ton of copies. Uh, You can see it in the Steam charts with just not a lot of uh, concurrent players, not a lot of interest. Uh, But then every once in a while, like there's a there's a gym and it seems to strike gold for whatever reason reason. how do you take that gamble? Clearly, it's a risk. It's a leap of faith um, for all those involved early in the project, especially, and then certainly as that team grows. Um, so how do you kind of make the assessment that it's going to be a game that is not only fun to make and something you can be passionate about, but also something that is going to sell, which is ultimately you know, the lifeblood of, uh, of any game? I don't know. My uh, colleague, Mihai, uh, has a saying that it's you know magic. I mean that's the part <laughs> where you can you cannot really define it. Yeah. We here in Romania, we know a lot of the local indie scene. 
some of them have been successful on Kickstarter and also at least mildly successful in um, actually selling the game afterwards as a finished project. Some of them have been successful uh, with one game, but not as successful with other games. Most of them have been, you know, not successful almost at all. And um, it's very hard to find a rule. And uh, most of them, that's the trick, most of the people that start an indie project, they think their idea is, you know, good and fun and uh, it will play uh, well and it will sell. And uh, I could have a different opinion when I play random project something and think, okay, this will not sell or won't be as fun, uh, but uh, I'm, you know, I'm just a person and the same, any of them could probably say the same about our game. So I don't know, I guess it comes with experience, um, but the thing is, for example, with door kickers, you look at games which are similar. Of course, there are none which are identical. And especially when we started in 2011, 2012, um, there were even fewer. Maybe tactical shooter back then were even fewer dead. There was, for example, a game which is Frozen Synapse. When I learned about it, I said, hey, this looks similar to our project Door Kickers, but Door Kickers was not yet produced. I played it, I liked it a lot. I learned how much it sold. I said, okay, sold pretty good. If we sell a fraction of that, would it be okay? Yes, it would be. Maybe we can. Are, you, are we unique compared to them? Yes, we are. So we did have a reference that, like that um, to think that maybe the game will not be completely uh, unknown. Nobody will care about it. So I think that's a starting point. And also, for example, when you look, uh, I can find somebody like you. Hey, there's a YouTuber. He's playing this kind of games. Does he have any traction? Can I pitch to him a project like mine, maybe, you know, a pre-release version? Will it be uh, um, well received by him? Will he offer any feedback? Maybe he can play a pre-release version live on his uh, channel or make a video. Will he like it? Um, because if you're working on a game like for two or three years and you have no external feedback, it's mostly like, oh, you think it's a fun game, so you start doing it, and then you play it and you still think it's fun, and uh, then you the game is done and you still think it's fun, but you have no idea if anybody else will um, find it fun. So I, I think in a sense that's a risk that uh, it's too big to take, especially if it's your first game. If it's, for example, in our case, it's Door Kickers 2, or if we now release Door Kickers 3, maybe from the financial point of view, we are settled so we can accept the risk, or maybe we know we have an audience, so we think whatever we put out now, even if it's Door Kickers or it's a completely different project, there will be some people that will hear about it. So that's a starting point, that's acceptable, that's an acceptable risk. But if you're an indie that doesn't have any traction, think very hard about what you're doing because any one of us is subjective in what he thinks is fun and what he thinks other people will play. And of course, there is also another risk. Um, and I'm sorry, you know, when I talk about this, it's very easy to find problems and risks, but that's the reality. I see a lot of people that are doing games that are, I don't know, uh, Jack the Lion style or XCOM style. 
Mm-hmm. And um, it's not necessarily a bad idea. I love it. Uh, those kind of games. I have, I think, thousands of hours in XCOM style games. I have many friends that play those. So there certainly is an audience. But of course, there's also lots of developers that are doing other kind of games, other games on that style. So the question is, if you are doing one of those, what will make you unique? What uh, will your game be remarkable? So that's a question that you have to uh, look at very hard, you know, uh, maybe just like an elevator pitch. If you're trying to sell me your game um, in five minutes or in, you know, two, uh, in a small text, um, will your game catch my ear in my interest or not? Because if it's just, oh, it's an XCOM style of game, hmm, uh, I heard that before. Yeah, so there's, there's just is, a ton of competition. Exactly, yeah. So maybe it's the best, but nobody will hear about it. So on our side, I think with Door Kickers, we managed to do that. And whenever we think of a new project, we also think, it's, okay, what will be remarkable about this game? What will differentiate it from other games which have, you know, a character that is going through buildings and uh, shooting people? Will it be like Hotline Miami? Will people think it's Hotline Miami? Will people think it's Intravenous? Will people think it's, I don't know, uh, uh, Thunder Tier 1? I don't know. See? So um, you have to be very realistic about it and look at it very hard. In a sense, it's uh, the job of the the game designer to think about this. But because we are a self-owned company with all uh, that... Also means we don't have to pitch the project to a higher person who is who thinks only about okay how much I invest how much money I get back. Uh, in uh, Ubisoft, you would get uh, stage gates that you would need to pitch to the creative team or the editorial team at uh, Ubisoft. Here, that step um, is also it doesn't exist. But on the other hand you have more responsibility because it's your own company. It's your own job. So it's not just, uh, hey, uh, we're wasting time here. It's our own time, our own life, and our own money that we're, uh, we could yep. be wasting if we're working on a project that is not successful. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And it, it just goes to show, I mean, I, I think often – about how hard it has to be to make games as a content creator because my job you know is easy it's a hobby and it somehow became profitable but it's you know taking these things that people invested so much time on and as you identified just so much risk in making um and all i have to do is click play and make a video um but the amount of time and effort that goes into actually making a high quality game and then putting it out there and the amount of money it takes to do that and the amount of people it takes to do that and just the the man hours is is absurd and if all that's done and then no one plays your game it was all for naught um so it's interesting to kind of hear you describe the way that you kind of assess that risk and then and mitigate it um and and you've you've talked a little bit about the business side is that something you enjoy or are you kind of like a, are you a creative, um, you know, game designer at heart who is now also, you know, a co-founder of this studio that is now forced into making a lot of these business assessments and decisions or, you know, in, in your professional capacity, are you more focused on the creative side and, and, and what do you think of now being a co-founder of a studio? Um, do you enjoy that, that chunk of it or do you prefer the creative stuff? So. Oh. Because we worked on a game for a couple of years, the part about you know business decisions like uh, 
let's do this or that project. Let's invest in porting this game um, on that platform or working with this publisher. They happen very rarely, if at all. So those are, I think, are the kind of business uh, decisions that most people think about. And they are very rare. And uh, even if you don't enjoy them, they are very important for you. So I guess they're acceptable. You just have to do it. Um, for example, when we finished, I think, Door Kickers 1, um, we were considering a couple of projects as the next one. And um, one of the titles was, was somewhat related in gameplay to Door Kickers, but kind of different. We thought it could be, it could sell even more than Door Kickers 1, which was a successful project for us. But on the other hand, we were also judging um, the transition to a 3D engine that we thought was needed from, for modding reasons, for all sorts of gameplay reasons, as you can see in Door Kickers 1. So it's easier to create maps of the certain style to blow up the walls. Um, but the other title was not just 3D, but was supposed to be outdoor. So we would have maybe a little bit of hillside or um, a river crossing. Okay. Uh, yeah, with maybe a smaller team or one individual character. So we thought, okay, going to build a 3D engine, this will take us some time. Building an outdoor engine of the quality we expect from a game like ours which is very, very important. We make games which are very, very polished. We think uh, of them as very high quality and both in technical side, but also on the gameplay side. But speaking strictly about, you know, the engine and the outdoor rendering and everything, we wanted to be at a certain quality. And I thought it will take us too long to do both. So let's do door kickers because it's what we know, but extended, revamped and everything, and, but still mostly indoor. And then maybe our next project will be the the one with outdoor. We'll see then. Which we don't have, you know, a settled uh, yeah. time frame. Okay, so uh, 2030, we're doing Door Kickers 5. <laughs> I will finish Door Kickers 2. Uh, we think, okay, we didn't put in half of the stuff that we wanted, but we also added stuff we never thought about it before. So be it. Again, because all the decisions are between us, and uh, we are also in a very good position. We play the game daily. We work on the game daily. We work on the game even on vacation, on our laptops. We watch people play. So we are the best uh, position to also react dynamically to changes, to new situations, to new ideas. Okay, should we do... Next, Delta. Man, I don't think Delta will work. Uh, should we do next uh, helicopter insertion? Uh, maybe like this, like that. Is it worth it to put uh, one month for, um, of work to do this feature? Uh, maybe it's not worth it, but I think it's fun. And uh, uh, again, it will bring some uh, quality for the players. Okay, we can take that kind of you know dec silly decisions, but also on-the-spot decisions to change the plan to something, to adapt to something which you find it's better at that moment to do, you know? So. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's perfect. The, um, yeah, so this is just the part, again, that's the part that most people think about when it's uh, business. 
But um, on the other side, this business side is also a lot of paperwork, <laughs> contracts. Yeah. Uh, okay, Steam wants to sell our game. Nexus wants to sell our game. Uh, we need to sign a contract. We need to do uh, invoices. We need to work with the bank. Uh, and it's Romania. It's a next communist country. Uh, paperwork is in our blood. Uh, <laughs> the, those are the kind of stuff that neither myself nor my um, partners, uh, you know, enjoy. But lucky for me, my partner is... Uh, much more serious about that part and um he handles most of it yeah no it's, and it's good to have bring that on your team <laughs> yeah some uh my partner uh, main partner in kill house is mm-hmm. mihai the co-founder and um the lead tech guy door kickers was mostly shaped by both of us um so uh he does very much of that part. We also sometimes bring external uh, help or that can work just on the business and contract side. But uh, right now, he's mostly doing that part. No, that's awesome. And, you know, you, you just kind of spoke to it. So uh, you guys were the original kind of, um, I, you know, creators or kind of door kickers. And that whole theme was really y'all's idea. What what led your passion for that style of stuff, for lack of a better term. So the military stuff, the gear stuff, firearms, tactics, um, clearly it's something you're passionate about from a game design perspective. Uh, but I know it's also something that you know, you're passionate about in your own life. And I know you've done, um, you've done some competitive shooting and, uh, and it seems to be something that you're interested in. So where did that interest come from and how did that lead to Door Kickers? Um, I really have no idea. I mean, even as a kid, you would uh, you go to your parents or grandparents' uh, library and you pick up a book, you read it, you like it, you pick the next one, maybe you don't like it so much. So you would get random books that uh, you find interesting and the interest grows over time. In my case, it was history books or uh, historical fiction or... Um, you know, war memorialistic, or I don't, I'm not sure which, uh, how it's called, but, uh, you know, when somebody takes place in some event and mm-hmm. describes his experience in a book. So, for example, strictly on the door kicker side, there was this book by a free French paratrooper that I think he was part of the SAS in World War II. So, dropped behind enemy lines in occupied France. Um, and uh, doing battle against the Germans, Edgar Tom. Uh, so that one was really, really interesting about ambushes and uh, infiltration and, uh, you know, very commandos-like uh, style of action. But also I, I read a lot of books about air warfare in World War II. Probably because it was World War II, they were more available in communist Romania than more Cold War-oriented books. Yeah. So um, there was a book about Douglas Bader, which is a British uh, fighter pilot who lost both his legs in a pre-war crash, but then rose to the rank of uh, wing commander, flying hurricanes at Spitfires. Without legs? And then he was actually uh, using uh, prosthetics. Oh, my gosh. 
yeah, he was a really apparently a really talented pilot. He's very famous, Douglas Bader, uh-huh. um, a very foul mouth uh, character, but really really fun. Uh, later, I discovered another book on the similar subject. I guess uh, uh, it's probably one of the most famous and, in my opinion, highly recommended books about air warfare in World War II. It's a French, uh, free French pilot. It's called Pierre Klosterman, and uh, the book is called The Big Show. So he's flying um, from Britain, Spitfires, and later Tempest uh, V. Uh, aircraft over um, Europe and it's very very cool especially as he describes in detail or you know the slow motion that you get in your head when firing on an enemy fighter and you see the propeller beating the air but you know in a natural uh, frequency actually because the action slows for you and pieces are flying out of it and uh, you see a little explosion there and uh, when the action catches up and uh, he's gone, but you don't know what happened, and you have to look at the uh, uh, gun camera footage to get a confirmed kill. This was something that was building on my teenage years, playing uh, games like Aces of the Pacific, Aces over Europe, uh, Secret yeah. Weapons of the Luftwaffe, um, Overlord, uh, Migali, I, I think Red Baron also. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and that gave me the um, temptation, the desire to do something like that, but better, I think. I mean, those are great games, but you always play a game and think, I want to do something like that, and this is what I could uh, add to it. This is what we should do to it. So there's this game designer spirit that is in a smaller or greater extent, I think, in all of us gamers, that you play a game and uh, you think of what could be added to it, uh, what could be improved, of things that could be changed, or how the experience could be more cinematic or better from the tactical point of view. So um, this would happen a lot of me, to me when um, reading books. But back then, I wouldn't say I had a specific... I, I was more leaning towards um, aircraft. Mm-hmm. Again, maybe because flight simulations were... Uh, more present uh, on early computers than uh, shooters or tactical shooters. You know? uh, but once we got uh, the famous mods, I think famous for me at least, uh, for Doom or Quake, uh, like Marine Doom, uh, Navy Seals Quake, yeah. uh, Counter-Strike, yeah. uh, then uh, Hidden and Dangerous, uh, Operation Flashpoint, Rainbow Six, I started uh, feeding that part of my interest also, also and um, reading about that part. And uh, at some point, I think um, I also discovered Airsoft. I mean, I discovered, I learned about Airsoft, the high de- highly detailed weapons and everything. Here in Romania, actual firearms are very highly regulated. So I learned about Airsoft. I considered buying um uh, Airsoft weapons, but they didn't seem to be freely available, easily available in Romania. You had to order from abroad. It's a pain in the ass. I remember ordering my uh, my first actually bow from uh, Canada, and how much of a trouble it was shipping and uh, um, you know the post office and um, uh, customs. So uh, I thought, ah, it's just 
pay a lot of money for a replica gun and then I'd have nothing to do with it, nobody to play with. <laughs> yeah. I, I never thought about it. And then I learned years later that there were actually people that were starting to play. So that was 2006, I think. So I went to an airsoft game and uh, I was hooked. Yeah. Uh, uh, I remember clearing, a, you know, in construction building with an... USP compact pistol rented. Yeah. And uh, it was actually a bit raining and cold. And I'm not sure, I know you've airsofted, but I'm not sure how much experience you have with uh, gas blowback pistols because, you know, Zero. those are like your secondary. Yeah. So it, gas blowback uh, rifles and pistols are very temperature uh, sensitive. So you would get if it gets cold you might get less performance from them less shots uh, they're more unpredictable but also what happens is they might release more gas so i remember going for one of those buildings everybody was just with rented pistols one of the guys had uh, a mac 10 though which was a machine pistol mm -hmm. so you would say you to dominate but we were very early players very um, nobody was really very skilled so you encounter somebody, you raise the pistol, and uh, a cloud of gas escapes, and it's, everything becomes foggy. But it's like you're you're suddenly in in a western, you know? It's yeah. raining over you. Yeah. So um, I was instantly sold. So uh, then I, of course, I got um, airsoft rifles and pistols and uh, organized events and helped organize events and traveled to Sweden to play in you know thousands of uh, players. Uh, at the same time and uh, oh, that's awesome uh, yeah uh, it was pretty cool and you yourself know how it is to take part in a large event like that mm -hmm. but of course you have your own real life experience in the military which we didn't i didn't but through airsoft also i got to know a lot of people that were interested in this kind of things and um, some of them were actually Retired military, retired uh, law enforcement or counter-terrorist or active duty. So some of them would organize trainings. We would start teams together. They would train their teammates. And um, some people that I got to know actually later built firing ranges, uh, went through all the paperwork, oh, wow. uh, help other people uh, pass the paperwork, like myself, to get uh, an actual firearm. Um, started uh, bringing uh, competitions like IDPA to Romania. So uh, a community that I met during Airsoft um, grew up in a, let's say, the firing uh, range uh, shoot, actual shooting community. Also bringing people from outside, which never, uh, of course, played Airsoft. And another thing happened. You know how it is that you can read about this or that firearm? or this or that piece of gear, or uh, this piece of tactics that uh, on paper it uh, works in a certain way, yep. but until you do some training with it, um, until you try it in real life, until you actually have contact with the enemy, so to speak, you'd have no idea if it really works and how it works. Yeah. So Airsoft allowed me to actually understand maybe more than I would as a tactical shooter player about things. Because again, I have no military experience. So yeah, uh, allowed me to test some of this, to get a better understanding, think about it, learn what questions I should ask about this or that, uh, 
test my gear. So this also gave me a little bit of experience that I would say applied uh, in door kickers or games of the sort. Sure. No, that's, I, I love what you're saying about Airsoft because the, the footage that I've put on YouTube, and I, I did a, a podcast with, um, with Greg and Karma Cut not long ago talking about our experience playing at one of those big events you describe. And that was my first exposure really to Airsoft. And I had a blast. Um, it's just pure fun. And it is a, you know, I, I hesitate to go far so far as to call it training, but there's definitely something there um, in the way of like a force on force experience that provides you with insight into that world that is essentially impossible to get in any other way unless you've, you know, served and had the opportunity to train or, or deploy. Um, so I'm glad you've been exposed to that. And it's clear that, you know, that passion can pretty easily translate into to game development. And you know, here in the in the next kind of chunk of the podcast, I want to dive into Door Kickers too specifically. Um, and and I'm curious, you know, you've you've talked about a lot about the passion. I'm, I'm pretty confident in kind of what led you uh, and your teammates to, you know, create the Door Kickers series. Um, what is the vision behind Door Kickers too? What what's it supposed to be? And you know, today in its current state, do you think that you guys are on track to achieve that vision? Um, I, who remembers, man? I I don't remember what we did when we started, <laughs> but I, I'm I'm partly kidding. I mean, you know, uh, when we started, well, it was 2016, and uh, development was a bit slow at the start, uh, especially as uh, at some point um, maybe we, it was hard for us to maintain focus. But then we also signed up, so to speak, to co-develop the side scroller. Um, uh, spin-off action squad. So mm-hmm. this is a very old school pixelated uh, side scroller game for basically two players to have fun together. Um, we got uh, more involved in that project than we thought we would. We thought it was just a developer that would work on our guidelines to do um, you know, a side scroller game, but we actually produced much of the levels, uh, game design, and. We also liked it very much. It was a fun game to play and to work on. So um, let's say Door Kickers um, 2 may be or may not be exactly how we started, but of course it is the, still the top-down tactics game. Uh, when we started uh, putting, the, I think, the ideas for Door Kickers 2, uh, it was based on a book called Task Force Black, which was mostly about... Um, SAS and Delta in Iraq. Uh, it's called. It's written by Mark Urban. I highly recommend it to anyone uh, interested in this. Um, so, the main idea that we got from that book was that in a you would get these units, which are highly trained, but they are finite resources. So. Um, we were not necessarily looking at the tactical side because we already had that with Door Kickers 1. Uh, when we did Door Kickers 2, we moved to a 3D engine, to a new engine. So we redid everything from the ground up. But in the early stages, of course, it's easy to look past that. You say, think, okay, we already have the Door Kickers 1 experience. What we're building on top of that? And the reality is that hold your horses, honey. You still have to rebuild everything if yeah. you want to have the 3D engine, right? Yep. But, so the main idea we started with, with was, uh, hey, you have the door kickers experience, but we would have some sort of 
strategic layer, like a campaign on top of it. So you would have um, maybe little pawns. You can think of, I don't know, XCOM or uh, Total War games. You have your pawns on the map and you deploy them looking mm -hmm. for contacts for a terrorist cell in this Noweraki, Iraq style country. And uh, the idea is that depending on what you do, you get results, you reveal enemies, you get missions or you might not get them. So for example, if you'd have civilian casualties, some populations will turn against you, at least not be friendly. Uh, they gotcha. might not give you intel. You would have uh, one uh, pawn, one little unit of Delta, but you might have two or three Ranger squads. So you can use those, but when you use those, it's higher uh, chance to have civilian uh, yeah. casualties or, um, uh, I don't know, hostages being killed. Nothing against Rangers. <laughs> that was the initial yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thought, you know, that they are better at applying overwhelming force, but may maybe they are worse than Delta or SAS. Uh, in applying uh, surgical force. Then uh, you would have uh, CIA that would be very good at applying surgical force, but very small amount of it, but they also can go undercover, so cover tops. So how can we make that work? And also another idea we got from Task Force Black was that, okay, you your actions matter in that the populations or the local authorities can collaborate or not with you, but also because there are other allies in the theater. So you are playing with the US and you have Delta, but depending on the choices you make, for example, enhanced interrogation, uh, oh my God, uh, some sort of uh, journalist learns about it. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> you have uh, a scandal in the press and everything, yeah. and the British might say, and that was a factor in the book, the British might say, hey, we have SAS, you can use them too. Oh no, we don't like this. We don't want to be part of this. Yeah. So um, there are choices on that strategic level that may determine your unit availability uh, and also the, the mission availability. So we thought that was very interesting in, um, in a layer of gameplay that would be cool to build. And we haven't even got to that part. <laughs> But uh, we're still doing and much more on the tactical side than we were initially looking to do. But that's the actual part of the game that everyone plays. Yeah. And uh, the reality is that, you know, it's very cool to talk about, hey, a strategic layer that is fun to play on. But until you see it in actual on your actual screen, it's um, not necessarily proven that it will work. Uh, I know people that play, I, I, for example, play again a lot of XCOM, a lot of Total War, mm -hmm. not as much as I would like to, though. So um, I know that people uh, always complain, hey, there's too much strategic action on Total War. There's too little strategic action. Yeah, uh, it's that... very easy when, when uh, you play, for example, I loved Napoleon Total War a lot and Empire Total War, which is basically kind of the same. Yep. So when you start um, uh playing one of those campaigns, okay, you have a few troops, you're yearning for a battle or to develop a city or something like that, and uh, you play the battle full time and, oh my God, you got a huge victory. Later in the game, when you have lots of armies, you're kind of auto-resolving yeah. most of the battles because you want to see the campaign go to a conclusion. And in a sense, a part of the game goes to waste. I mean, 
I'm not saying Total War doesn't do it well. They're certainly doing much better games than we are. I love them. I met some of their developers. They're amazing. I'm just saying that's an actual issue that you have to wrestle with as a developer, as a designer, to make sure what you're doing, uh, you're comfortable with how the game will play. So uh, that's why in Door Kickers, we make a conscious decision that you don't stay so much in the actual um, equipe screen. We don't have weapon builders. Even though people ask for it, we think if we give, gave in to that, that you would customize your trooper to, you know, lots of little things on the weapons. And uh, okay, this kind of grip and this kind of pistol grip and this kind of stock and this kind of ammo and uh, this attachment and the light and this and that. First of all, it wouldn't necessarily represent choices that people would think about in real life. Yeah. And uh, on at least a commander. Yep. And uh, you would wait you would waste too much time on the mission uh, gear side and uh, it will be too hard to change from one mission to the other. We think when you go, if you finish the mission, you should have a few macro choices when you go to the next one. Okay, everybody get night vision, suppressors on. Hey, you, the machine gunner, I want, uh, I want him off the team. I want a DMR. I want a grenadier. So some choices, or when you retry the missions, you have some choices, but you don't take half an hour to actually customize one trooper. So extrapolating this kind of issue, again, it could happen at the strategic level that we're talking about. Sure. We do a strategic map. There's a lot of effort um, to do that. But uh, the question is, uh, how much gameplay would there be there? It's still to be proven. On the other hand, you noticed how much effort we're doing in the random mission generator. Yep. It, the random mission generator is something that players enjoy, that works on its own, that being built and it's already a great tool and a very fun tool, but it's also a building block that we will use for all sorts of campaign style developments. So it could be something like a tour of duty where, where you would get uh, random missions for seven days and then you rest or you've done with the tour of duty. Or um, a door kicker's one style of campaign where missions are chained and you have choices. I have two missions, which one do I do? How do I spread my, I spread my teams because I cannot handle both of them at the same time. Or an actual campaign with a strategic layer as I described before. So we're still building towards that even though it's, it might make it in the game or not was a strategic level campaign. Yeah, that's that's awesome to hear. The um, you know, when, when you're talking about the strategic level campaign mixed with the tactical style gameplay, I um, I, I think of a, a game like Mount and Blade, uh, and I'm sure you're familiar with that series. But they do a great yep. job of you know creating those chance encounters on the strategic layer, but then also having extremely meaningful tactical combat that you're not as inclined to auto resolve as you will in a late game kind of total war uh, style game. Um, and in the persistent campaign idea, whether it's, you know, chained missions or it's procedurally generated missions um, or some blend of the two, that's certainly something that's appealing to me. But but I, I totally agree with you that, you know, door kickers 
at its core is it's a tactical top-down planning game and you're doing that at the kind of like platoon leader or commander level um and so mastering that and making that gameplay you know as impactful and as meaningful and as high quality and polished as possible um is certainly where i'd put my priority and, and certainly seems to be where you've you know the, the studios put the priority uh and, and that no doubt seems to be the right decision though i'm still excited and intrigued to hear that you know a a campaign style persistent sort of experience uh of some sort might still be in the cards and in some of those decisions you know, the equipping, you know, customized weapons and weapon builders and stuff. I, I agree with you that that's kind of a, a low impact decision, but a high impact decision on the campaign side, you know, may not be auto resolving conflicts because there's things at stake. Um, so if you're hunting a specific high value individual, you know, and you have to complete a series of targets, whether they be procedurally generated or set pieces, um, and then the intelligence off those targets drive you towards that final HVI uh, that you need to capture, kill, or, you know, the hostage that you've got to rescue that VIP you've got to find, um, those sort of decisions in a campaign style um, would certainly be uh, pretty impactful and, and powerful. Um, and, and actually kind of in the door kickers to vein, yesterday as I was, uh, I was scanning through all of the developer updates and, and just doing some research for the podcast, I looked at the Steam store uh, and I was reminded that there's a quote on there from a book I love called uh, Violence of Action by Marty Scovland, which I, I also highly recommend. Um, it's a, a collection of stories and firsthand accounts from Rangers in combat um, over the GWAT from the early years up to, you know, 2015, 2014 or something like that. Um, and if the audience will forgive me, I'll, I'll read just a, a bit of the quote that's uh, on the Steam store page. It's a squad leader describing uh, an entry of his team. And it says, charge set, my alpha team leader said, not knowing what lay beyond the door, I commanded burn it over the radio. Burning, he replied. Sliding his finger into the pull ring of the ignition system, he pushed the pin, turned it a quarter turn, and pulled. The night was no longer silent as the sound of shredding timber filled the night. Windows shattered and pieces of glass fell to the ground. The walls shook. Where there was once a door, only smoke remained. Like water bursting forth from a dam, men flowed into the unknown. And I love that quote um, for many reasons. I, th I think it's definitely indicative of the player experience in door kickers and certainly um, captures some of the detail that the team has put into thinking what features need to be in the game. In this case, you know, something as simple as a door charge, how you stack behind it, the unknown that's beyond it. And then, you know, the violence of action uh, required to get into the space and, uh, and, and complete that level. And just as an aside, it's also super interesting. Um, when I first competed for selection and went to the Ranger regiment, uh, violence of action had just come out. Um, and, uh, and, and I read that book. So I'd already, I had already gone to selection and then I was like getting my family and we were moving to, uh, the Ranger battalion. And I read that book during that move when, in my time off is on my way into the unit to learn about the unit and kind of what was going to be expected of me. I'd already been in the military for a few years, um, had a deployment under my belt and, uh, and more in front of me. And, and I read that book and just to kind of get a, a sense of, you know, what was to come. Um, so I love that that's featured on the, on the store page. Um, and, uh, it, it just kind of, I don't know, it gets me jazzed, not just cause the game, but certainly what it means to me personally. And it's, it's something that I highly recommend. Um, and, and it speaks to the detail that you guys were going for, or I, I presume you're going for, um, in door kickers. So, you know, with that kind of quote in mind as, you know, the vision of the game, have you achieved at the tactical level, um, 
you know, what you set out to? Does the gameplay uh, have the detail that you want? Is it on track? Is it smooth? Is it polished? Um, is it where you want it to be right now in playtesting after it's, you know, gone through the ringer of, you know, being, uh, you know, under the public eye with guys like me playing it and, and folks purchasing it and, uh, and interacting with your, with your project? There's definitely more that needs to be done that we want to do. We are very happy with it, but uh, there's always more. I mean, the game is not complete. Uh, but again, even in the tactical level, there are hundreds of little or not so little features that we would like to add. We'll see how uh, we can shape them, you know, to get them in the game. We'll see. Yeah, I, I'm certainly impressed with how it plays now. I mean, with the amount of indie titles I've been exposed to, the gameplay is as polished as any as I've ever seen. Um, and, and someone unfamiliar with uh, the studio picking up the game for the first time, I don't think they would slap an indie sticker on it. Not because indie games are lower quality, because that's not necessarily the case, but simply the amount of detail and time put into making sure that players have a you know a smooth experience. Um, but the game also has to be fun, right? It, it just can't be this brutal simulation where a player just gets stomped by the realities of close quarters combat time and again. So how do you find that balance, you know, between a fun experience that a player wants to continue playing over and over again and master and get a, a real smooth run versus authenticity? Um, and, and how do you achieve that balance from a, a design perspective? Again, I think part of it is the intuition of, or what you think will be fun, whether you're right or not. It's uh, how you live and die as a game developer. But also playtesting your game and uh, evaluating on yourself how you think it plays. There is, for example, a feature that comes to mind. Uh, in our game, most of the ex explosives, breaching charges, don't have backblast. Yeah. So obviously, <laughs> in reality, uh, you wouldn't just put an explosive on... Uh, a door or a piece of wall, you would have your whole team go back, especially if you are indoors. Yep. So if you are indoors, uh, somebody, I think in the book, one of our, of our you know, um, players that writes to us said, uh, yeah, you would be much further from it because you don't want to get uh, traumatic brain injury from the shockwave. So not just that... Uh, Okay, the explosion will hurt you, but it's the shockwave yeah, that the will blast. hurt you. Yeah, and uh, people would use maybe some sort of uh, ballistic blanket to cover them, or they just go around the corner. Corner. Now, especially how the game is uh, played and how the levels are played, this would mean that, one, you would have to... Most of the games need breaching on the... Most of the missions need you to breach the initial door. Afterwards, you might meet, uh, you know, uh, doors that uh, need to be bridged, but it's not so often. So the initial design of door kickers and by extension door kickers too is it's the player. He's outside of a house or an apartment. There's this door and he has choices. Okay, do we blow the door or do we open it quietly or do we um, open it because it's not locked and uh, throw a flashbang in? Or do we go through the window? Or do we go through the back door? So those kind of choices. And he draws a plan immediately, and he tries it, and there's no penalty if it doesn't work. And he can restart. And um, 
uh, he can try again, improve his plan and see if it works. And if it works, he builds, he plays more or he starts, sees it again and improves the plan so it works even better. Now, if instead of, you know, starting near the door, you would need to go to the door, place the explosive and then go back somewhere where it would be safe in the in real life, it would be maybe a better representation of reality and a better training tool, but it would make the whole planning much more prone to error and not as fun. You would have you know, all those paths going through each other. So we really want to avoid that. And we think in the end it doesn't add so much to the game. The problem being, of course, that it's also there is a balance issue. You have many tools at your disposal, okay, and uh, the way you represent them might not be fully representative of the real world. For example, why do people use mechanical breaching in real life or uh, ballistic breaching like shotguns? Because they don't have, always have explosives, or yeah. they don't want to use explosives inside the structures because they or somebody else in the building could get hurt. So unless we represent that uh, in a building which is full of you know, bad guys, you don't care if they get hurt, but you care about your own people. So um, that part of the game, having you know, shotguns really useful compared to slap charges or other explosives, maybe it's not as strong in our game as in uh, real life. Uh, maybe we'll find a better solution for that, but definitely backblast is not something we're willing to put in the game. That's something just for to make a smoother, more fun experience. Yeah, I think that's the perfect example, really, um, the explosive stuff specifically. And I, I talk about it a lot in, in videos. Like if I'm doing something that's contrary to what would make sense under authentic you know circumstances, I'll, I'll at least speak to it. Um, but I also appreciate that I don't have to you know, um, retrace those paths in such a detailed way that, you know, me especially yeah. would be prone to screwing up. Um, so that, that, that yeah. that's the, really the perfect everyone, example. Everyone. Yeah. The, um, yeah. I, it could happen that if, for example, you would draw a path through the, um, door and your, your troopers would automatically assume cover positions. So they, they would be covered from the black blast, black blast. But this is something that is against our philosophy of game. So we don't want your troopers to take one step extra than what you, you drew for them. And also, of course, it would imply all sorts of extra development time. What if they don't have space? So we may need to make the initial entry bigger. What if that space where they take cover is in a, in a danger area? So they would be seen or uh, engaged by the enemy. Can the player change it? So all sorts of questions that don't have easy answers. So our solution, again, is a little, also a little simpler from the development point of view. And in the end, you have to remember, we are a small team. We are doing a great game. Uh, so maybe a more complex and better quality than the average indie game. But we still have to make choices. Should we put one or two more months on on the backblast issues that we could solve this or that way or ignore that and maybe make better AI or uh, NVGs or suppressed weapons sure. or some sort of campaign. So we choose to work on those other stuff. 
yeah our features that's uh that's perfect and it, i i love the um i love the explanation and it, it's right in line with kind of what i presumed you, you spoke to kind of the, some of the detailed ways that players plan and making the backblast decision based off of how people like playing the game. Um, one of the ways that I know you're familiar with is, is using a single plan style of planning where the player traces out the entire level and then just clicks go. Uh, and there's something inherently satisfying about a successful single plan that just runs smoothly. It looks smooth. It looks cool. Um, and it, it speaks to the player's skill if they're able to accomplish a single plan and, uh, and and make it work. And it also speaks to kind of that quote that I read earlier from Marty Scovlin, where he described his squad going through the door like men, you know, bursting forth from a dam, essentially flowing like water, which is kind of that that CQB flow that everyone loves seeing in movies uh, and certainly in games. Is there a preferred way that you like playing the game or is there a way um, that you like seeing players play the game? Do you have single plan style, you know, players in mind? Uh, during game design and level design decisions? We try to cater to all players and there is not a right way or a wrong way to play the game. Um, I lean more towards single plan, but lately more towards half plan, so to speak. I mean, you plan for the next door and uh, the way and the room afterwards and then build on top of that, which I think is kind of the way you also play as mm-hmm. least how I watched you play. Yep. So solve each problem at a time. When we started Door Kickers 1 and obviously 2, I was more of a single plan player and that was the initial um, idea of the game. It was heavily inspired by the original Rainbow Six. Um, Rainbow Six, for those who are not familiar with it, of course it's a uh, tactical shooter, but in the original games like Rainbow Six 1, 2, and 3, you would also draw plans uh, for the building for your squad, and you would have actually two or three teams uh, that would work at the same time, and you only got to play one of the characters. You could switch between them, but the others, which are not directly controlled by you, would go on those plans. Uh, And uh, there was a certain satisfaction to watching the AI complete those plans and uh, win the mission for you. At some point, they even added the possibility to completely sit it out and watch commander style through the viewpoints of the soldiers, of the uh, troopers in your squad, and just give go codes and uh, hold commands to them and watch the maps and the views. So um, we built towards that idea, and I was very much um, a single plane kind of guy. But as the maps got bigger and bigger, even I, you know, started uh, taking it, taking it one chunk at a time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The other teams, uh, the other uh, people in the team, as far as I know, and especially Mihai, are more of a real-time players. Um, but uh, we are all concerned of making the experience fun and uh, as polished as possible for all sorts of people, which also makes it more difficult when you have the interface and features that need to work both ways. Sure. Are, do you still, do you have fun playing still? I mean, you're, you're touching the game every single day. You're so invested in its development. Do you still enjoy playing it? I mean, we get new content from you and there are always big updates with these new features and levels to check out. Um, 
Do you get that same sense of excitement and wonder when a level designer hands you like a, a fresh level to try for the very first time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm having fun even at uh, missions that um, I design myself. And because I know them, but the way the game is built, the way the AI works, the way the levels are built is that there's an infinite amount of situations that could happen. Sure. So uh, it's always fun and you're surprised and it's something spectacular happens and you feel smart about it. And that's the part of the core of Door Kickers. You play and you feel smart about the stuff you, you've done. And also, I think Door Kickers 2 maybe does this better, a little bit better than Door Kickers 1. Probably because of the suicide bombers, there are more what the fuck moments. You know, <laughs> yeah, stuff uh, that can surprise you. More explosive. That is objectively true. How hilarious yeah. is it that the bathroom incident has just become a meme on my channel? <laughs> we like that our game has become more meme oriented. Yeah, yeah. It's, Again, uh, I have it people. Makes the game more viral. Yeah. Every single day, I get a comment you know, on that video or in a social media post or in discord, um, from someone recounting like the, the bathroom incident. And I think that was my first like encounter with the suicide bombers after, um, you know, they had been added and, uh, yeah, it was a hell of a, <laughs> it was a hell of a thing to, to see for the first yeah. time. Oh man. You can no longer escape that. No, no. I, I always see the comments about, you know, bathrooms. And... <laughs> someone even made a, did you see the custom level that someone made? Um, yeah. Yeah. Like it was uh, like a Pears tribute. <laughs> I think it's just a collection of bathrooms. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely sick. Is, I, is I, it still available? The I, I think it is. I think it's still on steam. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's wild. hundred K yeah. celebration. We'll just do that level. Um, <laughs> No, it's too funny. Speaking of the custom stuff and kind of like the modding scene, do you stay pretty dialed into what custom maps are coming out? I know every once in a while you guys release a, a map pack in some of your highly recommended community levels. Um, do you pay attention at all to the other mods that are floating around? I, I got into the tier one overhaul for the first time not long ago. You know, I, I played the game mostly vanilla just because I kind of wanted to play it as as you guys intended uh, for as long as possible. To, but I'm curious on your take on, you know, custom level designs, tier one overhaul and, and just modding and custom content in general. We don't play as much as we, I don't know, should and could, I guess, because obviously we have very, uh, we have a lot of time invested in building our own stuff, and it's very hard to work with actual mods and the development uh, development version. That's why whenever we release a new version, some of the mods break because we might change things that uh, are also touched by the mods. Now, for the actual missions, well, we play a lot, especially the guys which are involved in level design. They um, play a lot of the custom missions. Um, we think some of them are amazing, uh, but also the volume is incredible. Yeah. I, last time I checked, I think there were 5,000 uh, maps yeah. on the workshop. It's absurd. Yeah, it's, uh, it's exactly. It's insane. But it's also so cool. Um, obviously, this was done allowing um, maps and mods. This is on purpose. In the end game, uh, also the workshop will allow unit mods and all those sorts of stuff. We awesome. just didn't put put them there right now to, to keep it a little simpler, uh, considering how much changes from one version to the other. Yep. Um, 
since we are very experienced um, developers and especially experienced some of us with Silent Hunter and simulations in general, we learned first firsthand how important mods and modders are for a successful game and for a game that touches on bit on the freedom and um, tactical side and uh, involves the community. So uh, Silent Hunter has a very strong modding scene and uh, many people, when you talk to them right now, players, they will say they uh, you, you you should play Silent Hunter 3 or 4, but only with this or that mod. They are very, very wow. yeah. uh, involved. Yeah. So don't play the base game, play with this or that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I cannot uh, disagree with them. Um, so we, it was really, really important for us to support that. And I know that we'll never be able to produce as much content and as interesting content as they do. Um, at some point, of course, with mods and with anything, there's a subjective side. Um, this or that weapon is more important. Mm -hmm. This or that weapon should be more deadly. And some of it, yeah, it's valid and should be changed in our own game, maybe. But some of it is just the way people are... Uh, they have a different reality that they want to portray, and it's absolutely okay. They like more choices. They like those choices. They want to represent a different unit. Fine by us. It's very cool. And we and the players get to win from their efforts. It's um, awesome. Yeah, no, totally agree. Also, great to, I'm not surprised, but I'm also, um, you know, glad to hear that mods will be fully integrated uh, upon final release, or at least that's the goal, and, and we'll have that Steam Workshop compatibility. Um, the game is, it, I'm always blown away by the updates. Um, it, you know, we get the occasional just, you know, quality of life upgrade, um, and, you know, the, the type of update required to keep a game functioning. We see that, you know, every once in a while, but we also see a ton of significant feature and content um, patches come out. It's just enormous. And, and over the last kind of year and a half or so that I've been playing regularly, we've seen you know procedurally generated levels. Uh, we've seen custom levels. There's been new game modes. We've seen night missions added with nods. We've seen factions added with um, you know the SWAT and the CIA. Um, we've seen suppressors added. So they always seem to be these really game-changing leaps forward um and it's really exciting because oftentimes i find myself like man i hope they add this feature like i, I hope this is somewhere on the horizon and sure enough like it's in the next update <laughs> and it's like it's added it's there you know which which i love to see and it, it's like um you know you you guys are very much tuned in um i don't want maybe to what all players want but certainly to what i want and and the kind of uh features that i'm excited to see uh in the game is that is that a pace that we can expect to see, and I don't want to sign Kill House up to go into crunch time for no reason. But I'm, but I'm just curious: is there more major feature and content drops in the future? Um, is that is that a level of development that is even possible uh, to keep pace? I don't know. Uh, I mean, we are aiming to release what we would call the full game later this year or early next year, mm -hmm. and probably release more stuff for it afterwards uh which could happen which could mean free updates free dlcs we don't know i mean we when we get to that point uh, we'll see um how uh, we what we feel should be added to it um 
because of that, because we are actually, you know, kind of on the home run, the release schedule will slow down a little bit. So you will see maybe one or two updates this year um, because things need to be ironed out in the exact shape for the release. And every time you, for the full release, and every time you release one of those intermediary patches, you kind of put a stop and focus more on polishing and um, it slows you down. So from that point, from that point of view, you will um, see less releases. But on the other hand, sometimes we want to get stuff out, uh, maybe just for player feedback, maybe because it's too cool to keep it just for us. <laughs> maybe it's more like a safe point for you. Yeah. We have added a lot and we want to, okay, get it out. I want to pass to something else and, uh, you know, release it to the public. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, but again, there is no definite uh, timeline for our development for the following months. And certainly not something uh, we are releasing to the public. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, it's very seat of the pants from a point of view. But you can be assured that uh, we have more cool stuff coming. Um, I mean, we want to make cool games. Cool games get cool by cool features that we add and the polished features. So, yeah. I love it. The, um, um, whatever you're doing, just keep doing that because it's working great. Cool. Uh, just <laughs> out of my head, uh, if we add, for example, doctrines, those will add something quite significant to the game and a certain level of control mm -hmm. uh, and uh, depth to your squads which I think will be important. And also when we add any sort of campaign-like uh, features, which would also imply, um, how do you call it, permanent damage and yeah. uh, wounds and deaths, um, those things will add to the exper experience a lot. Uh, again, this is something we explained for Door Kickers 1 and Door Kickers 2. The single missions are more uh, your proving ground, your training. They are very fun to play and you shouldn't be penalized for losing people in them. You should, you should just try to do them as well as possible. To, you're learning there. But if we put you in a context where um, depth and wounds carry over from a mission to the next one, whether they are random or hand-built, because uh, those are the kind of things we could do, uh, then it will be, you know, all bets are off at that moment. Yeah. It will be a whole different experience. Uh, you're no longer going against the time. You're taking, your, uh, taking it slowly, maybe, because you know that every hit your soldiers take will be there I'd say forever, but of course, uh, not exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's that's yeah. that's definitely something that I'm super interested in, and I can already envision, you know, if, if permanent death or permanent damage uh, in a hardcore style, you know, campaign mode was ever integrated, I would immediately start naming an entire squad after my channel members, and then um, letting them uh, watch whether or not they make it through the campaign and do a full playthrough. It'd be a blast. Um, yeah, it's just the the opportunity there is is super interesting, and, and I also agree that it's 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 punishing, and it makes you stop and think critically, and you can't take those kind of rec uh, reckless risks that you might otherwise in in a standalone level. 
Um, but if, if we look back over like the last year, and I kind of listed some of them, procedurally generated levels, uh, custom stuff, game modes, night missions, factions, suppressors. Um, is there any update over the last year or so that stands out as, as what you think is has been the most impactful or the most important update that we've seen so far? The one that's kind of either um, revolutionized the player experience or moved the game forward in you know a way that was perhaps more significant than the others. Is there any kind of major update that stands out? I'm not sure, but I would say there are two of them which um, are very significant for me at least. One of them is the night missions patch because I think we added also suppressor customization and that was something the players requested a lot. And uh, not only did we add uh, suppressors, but the implementation was better and more important and with night vision and everything than in Door Kickers 1. In that you get also um, darkness hiding you and muzzle flashes revealing you and uh, suppressors uh, mitigating uh, mitigating a little bit, you know, uh, they reduce the muzzle flash so you are only visible for a fraction of a time. So you still need to be careful when opening fire in the dark. Um, but essentially... So it's also it's a better experience than whatever we had as night or suppressor gameplay in Door Kickers 1. But it also is something which is at the very core of what people expect of the Special Forces experience. That's ninja stuff, right? I mean, um, it's not necessarily what is the most realistic. But again, it's um, I remember... Um, I'm reading a review or a preview of the original Rainbow Six, and uh, the reviewer pointed out uh, rightfully, I think, at the opening scene of the movie Air Force One, you know, the Harrison Ford movie. In the opening scene, there's a joint Russian-American uh, Special Forces team that drops in the night. Uh, I think they're doing Halo. Uh, no, actually, Haho, I think. Um, insertion on a palace and, you know, killing the guards and capturing somebody and getting out via helicopter from the rooftop. It's very Hollywood, if you look at it with the 2020 uh, in this age where we know everything about uh, special forces and uh, these kinds of operations. It's Hollywood. But when you look at it with the eyes we had back then, it's the quintessential special forces experience. You go through the night, you strike decisively at people that have no idea that you're there, and you don't give them a chance to react, and uh, you act very fast with violence of action, and uh, before the eco you know, goes off, you are already out of the objective. So this is better represented... Um, it, it happens in door kickers even in normal missions, but in night missions, it's more towards that experience. So we think we touched that very well, and it's something which is very important, a very important milestone for door kickers to, to achieve and to offer to the players. Also, many of us enjoyed very much the SWAT patch. The, <laughs> it's a, yeah, maybe also because uh, it's a little bit of an underdog. Uh, maybe because they finally get shields and many players have requested, hey, bring shields back. Yeah. Why don't we have shields? 
oh man, Rangers don't use shields. Yeah. I don't care. Well, we actually, in the initial plans, they were not supposed to have shields, but since we're doing a fictional country, we said if players want it so much, it could conceivably work. So uh, we added them. And I think they're great. And um, there's all sorts of, all sorts of interesting gameplay uh, developments related to how SWAT work with the militia that can be deployed a little bit uh, more in higher numbers than regular units. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's fun to watch them, watch people play with them, use them in co-op. So um, that was pretty cool also. And we, it was especially important that it was well received. And uh, since obviously most of the of our players are uh, from the Western world. Sure. And uh, relate more to units from obviously their own countries or uh, Western world NATO friendly countries. Mm -hmm. So uh, a unit from Nowhere or Iraq or whatever you want to call it was uh, something uh, which many people did not expect, but they received it very well and enjoyed playing them. And uh, that was very cool to see. Yeah, I think um, I agree. the The night update's huge. It has like a a theme that's critical in any game that wants to fe feature you know special operations style gameplay. Um, and then the the SWAT update, it was great. It's hard. It's extremely fun, and it, it changes the gameplay uh, considerably. And and I when I first started playing with the the SWAT faction, like I felt the pain of like that untrained uh you know not untrained but lesser trained force uh but it but it makes you think much differently about how you approach the level and it's just uh it's extremely fun to fun to use and you know a lot of people compared it to you know the movie um, the movie Mosul that made waves uh even in the west you know super super popular um you know historical sort of fiction kind of account of um the action in Mosul against ISIS back in what was it 2017 or so 2016 um and and i think it, it captures that theme really really well and it's it's a an absolute you know blast to uh to play with so i'm i'm, I'm certainly glad that that was um added and while we're here on the record i just wanted to throw out my wish list and keep in mind for the for the audience i don't know anything more than any of you guys do about the development of door kickers in fact i know more now <laughs> having talked to Dan for the last 90 minutes than I did at the start of this. And, and so we're all listening here and on the, on the same level. Um, and Dan, these are big, man. So I'm, I'm, I'm counting on you guys to make it happen. I'm just kidding. I'm just throwing these out though. Cause it's fun. Uh, and I do this periodically. I think I've done it on Twitter a couple times too. Um, but I, I threw dogs on here. So canines, I don't know how the hell you'd implement them, but it'd be freaking fantastic and they'd probably be overpowered. So I don't know how from a development standpoint, that'd be even possible, but canines would be sick. Um, some sort of like small UAV or something that allows you to kind of buzz around with the quadcopter for a limited duration, let you peek around uh, into compounds or over walls. Um, something that like you maybe can only use it once or twice, maybe get shot down, maybe it compromises you because it make noise, but some sort of like small UAV. Um, here's a contentious one, air support. And that's contentious because you don't want to ever push the easy button and just delete the level and make a player experience end because they have overwhelming firepower. But if there was a way to integrate it, maybe not in the base levels, but in some sort of persistent campaign in the future uh, where it's extremely limited, maybe not perfectly accurate, maybe it causes a ton of collateral damage, um, but but a way to 
to kind of plan fire support. Maybe you have to plan it at the beginning of the round so you can't adjust it on the fly. I don't know. But some sort of air support would just be cinematic and fun as hell. We've already talked about persistent campaign. That's a huge one for me. I think it, um, you know, especially if it has a procedural nature to it in a hardcore mode that makes it um, just uh, punishing and replayable and challenging uh, and compelling from the selfish perspective of a content creator. Um, and then within that persistent campaign, some way to, you know, gather intelligence and inform where you want to go next and make player decisions, uh, based off an experience somewhere in that level that, that informs the player where they might want to go next to achieve their ultimate goal of either like rescuing that hostage, killing that bad guy, capturing that HVI. Um, I'd infill and exfill on here. It feels like with the QRF mode, um, we're getting there as far as like the, the, the rapid helicopter insertion. Um, but if those ever become animated, that's like obviously not something that affects gameplay in the least, but it's pretty and it's cool. <laughs> and then, uh, and then I put on here kind of in line with the, the procedural or the persistent campaign stuff. Um, if you're gathering intelligence throughout some sort of persistent campaign, and you're making decisions based off of that intelligence to inform where you ultimately go to achieve the campaign objective. Um, your actions should inform how much information you have uh, going into the next target. So, um, you know, maybe you got super good intelligence that allowed you to get an aircraft over that next target and learn a lot about where the enemy's at and how they're behaving. Uh, or maybe you don't have a lot of intel for that target and the fidelity isn't super high, but you make the reckless decision to go do it anyway, but you go in blind without a ton of information. I'm just throwing that out there on the record, you know, gentle, uh, gentle nudge for a development studio that's in the, uh, the final hours of trying to produce a high quality game without time to rapidly respond to the desires of one selfish player. Um, but, but now the audience has heard it and if nothing else, it's at least a prediction. So we can see what, what happens in the future. What's your take on my wish list? (laughs) Well, um, it's, uh, it's a very cool list, first of all. <laughs> it definitely, if we had everything on the list in the game, it would be a better game, a more complex game. Now, I'll go through each item because it's interesting to talk about it. Sure. Uh, first of all, about the dogs. Um, this is something that obviously comes from time to time. Uh, especially, we have a friend who worked with dogs, mm. I think, in uh, in the theater. Uh, his Magnum from the from Twitter. So uh, this is somebody I've known for a long time. Uh, The question is, you are thinking obviously here about uh, military working dogs or uh, so on your side, right? Oh, either side. But yeah, totally like like, uh, feral canines giving away your position could be cool too. But would you be okay with killing those canines? Yeah, I mean, we're killing people, man. Let's go. (laughs) No, because uh, everybody uh, has their, you know, soft spot and uh, yeah yeah killing animals it's like oh we've even had players that said oh if i had to kill uh, dogs then i would i wouldn't play the game yeah and you don't want to do that that's tough (laughs) but if they give your position away uh, that's a tough one man Uh, the thing with dogs is obviously there's a side of how they would work but also animation and everything Mm -hmm. i think it's doable but given that it's more complicated from uh, the technical side it's it's not on the high uh, priority list for us. Sure. Also, um, there's a question of how you would get to deploy them. A special character, a special class that would, say, bring it for the Rangers. Yeah. Would it be tied to with another design we might have? So the thing is, 
I have a design uh, that might work with this and with another suggestion of yours. Um, you would get at the start of the mission in deploy phase to choose one or more of uh, your special strategic abilities, like the sniper being one of those. Okay. Now, the sniper is very cool. Uh, it's something we, let's say, had in Door Kickers 1, and uh, yeah, obviously we had to head over here too. But it doesn't always work, but it it would be a cool option to replace or augment with other choices like mortar support or drone strike, depending, maybe something depending on the unit that you have. Obviously, it would raise questions of uh, would it be appropriate if you had drone strike uh, in an apartment with a roof over the top? Would it yeah. have any gameplay effect or would it be wasted? If it's automated, it would be wasted. If it's um, in the player's hand, uh, what would it imply? What would happen in cooperative gameplay when there are two or more players? So one idea is that you would also be able to spawn uh, units that would help you, which are not part of your regular roster. So for example, uh, um, dog handler, or maybe an interpreter or something else, or maybe they should be part of your unit. It could work either way, but there are things that don't get done by themselves. We have to consider everything and work on them. Um, by contrast, using a small UAV does bring some questions, but seems more straightforward. Sure. Uh, it's an equipment piece that you would probably equip and control, maybe like a regular soldier, but with less animations. So it certainly would be something cool. Um, we'll see. Uh, the air support, again, it would tie, if I do it uh, the way I thought about it in my head, it would tie uh, in the interface to choose your strategic uh, power, so to speak, that I, I spoke about earlier. But it would also, it might work in a strategic campaign kind of context. Uh, it would be the easy button, but actually, um, in my head, it would work maybe like a, the auto-resolve, but has a downside. So. You get intel that um, this or that terrorist leader is at a certain location. So you get to send your Delta Force squad, but they are still recovering from a previous uh, um, raid, raid. So yeah. they have uh, their own cooldown. Do you get to send uh, the Rangers? There are pros and cons to doing it. You also can drone strike it or whatever, have an F-15 drop a GDM bomb on top of the house. That will resolve the, the issue, but maybe it generates um, less intel, maybe it generates civilian casualties, maybe it doesn't uh, confirm the kill. So uh, those are choices that, okay, I solve it, but there are disadvantages to it. So even if though, it would not happen maybe in the tactical level because in most, uh, in most of the maps, having an airstrike uh, would mean cover the entire map mm. with, uh, you know, explosive. Yep. So maybe it would work, maybe not, but it could be represented to the strategic level. On the other hand, we are uh, obviously, when you play maps like uh, the Raptor Down map we added in the last patch, it's obvious that you would 
you should be able you could be could use some sort of external support uh to prep uh, the enemy defenses uh to handle some of that yeah uh in any real situation uh, any movie that you would quality movie that you watch you'd have yeah, i don't know a little bird doing a strafing run yeah. or uh, an f-16 or uh, i don't know a drone something would would work there and it it would it would be cool and even though if i don't know the explosion maybe with tuned down for gameplay reasons and not as powerful as in reality it would still be i think acceptable for our players again from the fun versus realism uh, concerns uh, taken into account everyone would say that was cool yeah you know? yeah no that's very, I, uh, that's awesome yeah the um... uh the persistent campaign we talked about it so <laughs> if we can do it sure yeah i'm not sure about the insert and dex field i mean in theory i think very cool but how would you see it working or when would you see it working in the game sure so the um i th- i don't think that a player should just say i want to choose anywhere on the map to infill or exfil I, I think that's that's probably a bridge too far and it'd be too difficult to develop um, but i do think a player maybe has depending on the map and the size of the map uh, on larger maps especially maybe two or three options um, so I'm thinking like some of the larger night maps, especially maybe there's a, an option to land, you know, a helicopter closer to the objective um, and that just an animation brings in the assault troop. Um, maybe, you know, it's there, it's a loud helicopter landing close to the target. So there's the risk reward kind of calculation there is we're loud, we're compromised, we're close to the target. We're going to be real close and have to go real violent and real fast, but we can get in quickly. We're just going to have to do it under fire. So maybe the helicopter... Um, you know, has uh, some sort of animation that, you know, shows uh, that suppressive fire, that cinematic kind of, uh, you know, mini guns blazing on the door on the way in kind of thing. Um, but then your your assault force is at risk because they're compromised. Um, the other two spawns on that level might be a um, a walk-in kind of option. Maybe they landed a helicopter really far away in the, in the, the elements walking in, uncompromised, super quiet, which is kind of how many of the infill options are illustrated now. Uh, and and that, that would kind of look like a more traditional spawn. Um, or maybe there is a, uh, a drive in option that doesn't get you, or maybe it gets you even closer than the helicopter. Uh, but by getting closer than the helicopter, maybe parking just outside the building, um, you're again going to be uh, compromised or under heavy fire when you do it, but you're going to be getting out of the truck next to the target compound. And you're just going to have to hope that you're able to get inside and establish some level of security. So I guess in my mind, that's kind of how I saw it. Just force the player to choose, you know, between three options, each showing their own risk and reward. Um, and based off of the target packet and the way that the terrain looks, that player has to make that decision and then suffer the consequences of whatever that decision is. But restricting it enough that from a development side, you really only create three options. They have associated animations with them and the players not freeform, just go in wherever they want. See, um, it's something that the experience you describe, I think ties to a certain extent into the door kickers gameplay Mm -hmm. Uh, in general it could be done and i think mission builders could do something like that choices like that 
um, even right now. For um, certain maps, it would work or it would not work uh, because if the map is clean, kill everybody as opposed to clear this structure and ignore yeah. the guys which are outside, which is not something we really have, but maybe for a hostage rescue, it would work. So it could be done. Um, I don't think long infills are in general very fun in our game <laughs> because they are very um, intensive in plotting and everything. Oh, yeah. So having one of those missions from time to time, it's okay. It's a variation. But the game is most fun when you plot a little, then use your brain to do a little bit of combat to solve a tactical situation. Then you plot a little more. Uh, if you do a lot of plotting in the initial side, and especially if there is no gameplay, it becomes too much of a workload and also too much of a problem when you actually need to restart the map. Now, of course, this changes if, for example, the map can only be played once. If it's part of the campaign on everything, um, where, uh, you know, this is it. I cannot restart it. This is Iron Man. This is uh, uh, the map. I, I'm getting only this chance to do it properly. It could be different. But then again, you would have to make a choice and stick with it. I'm uh, dropping my team uh, in front of the target house and I'm doing an insertion from the back. Uh, again, right now, the system of triggers that is in the game and uh, the way it works with spawning entities, with alerting enemies, it could be, I'd say hacked, but it's actually, it could um, create a bit of that kind of experience. Uh, yeah. As long, so your starting point would determine the way the player encounters the enemy from the start. But it takes a lot of effort and you as a level designer as a mission designer need to accept and be very careful about what sort of experience the player will have in either of those choices sure so um i'm not entirely convinced that it would could be done as a rule uh even though as an idea the, ex the choices that you described are very cool and very in line with what you're trying to do with door kickers. Hey, try this. Uh, you have this map and try all the approaches. Yeah. That's why you, in many maps you have, okay, start at the back of the building, start at the front of the building. Sure. Uh, yeah, and all the choices that come afterwards. Okay, I started here, but what do I do further? You know, how do I proceed? It's in line with that, but um, it kind of works when you are near the building. I need to think more on it. On it. Yeah, no, I totally empathize with everything you describe, and I, and I'd hate to like try to go back and rework all the existing maps with like multiple like new spawn locations. I don't think that works at all. Um, no, no. I, I think it would, if anything, it would have to be you know something in the future, and maybe not certainly not every map. Um, you know, maybe one in five or one in ten maps um, give you the opportunity to choose between two or three uh, methods of infiltration, and even if it's in in and again like the animation is the hardest part to do probably beyond the level design. Uh, but would also just be, it'd just be badass to see like a two UH 60s screaming in, you know, mini guns blazing and a bunch of Rangers pour out and, uh, you know, start storming towards the target. Even if that was just like 
you know, on the QRF mission that I just published uh, last week, um, if that helicopter, like if we saw it fly in, mini guns blazing, rangers come off the ramp, start moving towards the target, and then it flies away, like that in and of itself uh, adds like exponential cool points and doesn't do much to actually change the the gameplay. <laughs> but it just be uh, it just be cool. But the um, you've been extraordinarily gracious with your time. I think we've been talking uh, about ten minutes shy of two hours, and you've answered every question. Uh, that I have listed here. So really want to give the floor over to you, give you a chance to you know, address me or the audience with any final thoughts um, that might be on your mind and uh, um, kind of, you know, what, what's on your mind? What, uh, what you got to say? I'm very grateful for having the chance to go on uh, your podcast. Uh, for me and for us at GitHouse Games, every control pairs video is a, uh, you know, like a gift. Uh, it's very interesting to watch. It's uh, you. We think you put our uh, game um, in a very good light, and you showcase it in a sense better than we could. Um, of course, like anything, your videos are for certain kinds of players. For others, maybe not. They are more action oriented than you, they want to listen to somebody reason about the tactical or strategic side <laughs> of a, a mission. Uh, you can't please everyone, but we enjoy them and we watch every one of those. Um, I personally also watch your videos for other games. It's interesting. Your also videos, of course. We enjoy the community feedback a lot. And um, I personally have listened to all the podcast episodes. And uh, uh, even though I knew uh, some of the people there, uh, I followed Karma Cut, or yeah. I even spoke to Spartan a couple of times. Um, so uh, I knew them, but uh, you know, it's the kind of persons that have interesting things to say, and uh, it's interesting to listen to. So uh, do this more, man. Uh, but uh, I mean, with other people, not with myself. <laughs> I can only <laughs> listen to myself so much. Not at all. Actually, uh, no, you've been awesome, man. This is uh, this has been fantastic, and I'm I'm super grateful for for your kind words. Like I said, you know, in the beginning, Door Kickers uh, did a ton for my channel, but you know, first and foremost, it's, it's just a fantastic game. I feel like it was made, you know, for me. Uh, like I I am the target audience, and it's just uh, it's perfectly crafted um, to to create an experience that I just get a lot out of, not just as a you know, someone who makes videos occasionally, but someone who just enjoys that experience and just uh, the mental gymnastics and, you know, luck and sometimes skill it takes to to be successful in it. So it's a gem of a game. Uh, and I'm, I'm grateful for you guys for making it super thankful that you're able to take some time out to, to come chat this morning. And I'm also grateful that, you know, you guys appreciate the content it means a lot that um, developers are paying attention to what players are experiencing it means a lot to me personally that you guys take the time to watch the videos and, and certainly that you've listened to the podcast because uh, this has kind of been a, a side project, just a passion project for me, um, just because I like talking to interesting people. And, and you've been a, a fantastic guest. So thanks so much for your time. And uh, I really appreciate you being here. For those who don't yet own Door Kickers, you should go buy it. Um, you can get it off of Steam. You can also get it off of uh, Nexus. I have it in, listed in my Nexus game store. Um, I'm presuming at this point that if you've listened to us talk for nearly two hours, you probably already own Door Kickers. But if not, you should remedy that immediately. 
Um, but Dan, brother, thank you so much for your time. I uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Best of luck to, to you and the team and, and my best to the team as they, uh, they move into the, the final kind of stage of development leading up to full release. I'll see you later, brother. Thanks again.